I would like to make it to a day when the blue H sign for a hospital means health and healing. Try to picture that in your mind's eye. And if we ever get to that day, then I know our job has been successful. The Jefferson College of Population Health and Population Health Company Navis are creating a new population health professorship. In today's show, Dr. David B. Nash of Jefferson College of Population Health joins Dr. Stuart Baker of Navis to talk about this initiative to translate scientific research into real-world practice, what they call an invaluable investment in humanity. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Join our online community on Twitter at OW Health Editor and subscribe so you never miss a new episode on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Hello, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Sam Glick, Health and Life Sciences Partner here at Oliver Wyman. Uh, today on the show, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. David Nash, who's the Dean at the Jefferson College of Population Health, and Dr. Stuart Baker. Executive Officer and President of Navis. Today we're going to talk about a topic that's had a lot of discussion, um, but I think still an evolving definition, which is the past, present, and future of population health. Uh, Excitingly, Navis and Thomas Jefferson University announced a few months back that they're working together to establish the very first nationally focused professorship of population health. I think something many of us would say is is um, very much needed in medical education today. So I am really pleased to have um, both Stuart and David here today to talk about what population health means today, um, what they're doing in their new program, and and how what uh, they're doing in that program is going to help uh, make healthcare better for all of us. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, David, maybe I'll I'll start with you. Um, What's your definition of population health? You're the, you're the founding dean uh, at the country's College of Population Health. How do, you, how do you think about it? What does that mean? Well, it's a great question, and uh, I guess we should know the answer, right? <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> yes. So we, uh, we have, I guess, a two-part definition. Let's go back to Dr. David Kindig and a really important paper he wrote in the public health literature now 15 years ago in 2003. And Kindig, a physician, a longtime hospital leader, public health expert, he predicted, I think, with real prescience in 2003 that public health, uh, obviously concerns over clean water, vaccination, the science of epidemiology, uh, while critically important for the health of a population, ignored other issues, uh, issues like the quality and safety of the care being delivered. Uh, the economic cost of the care, the efficiency and effectiveness. So we use a definition of population health that embraces uh, work done by David Kindig and embraces work going on in the marketplace today. So population health management might be how do you effectively manage a group of uh, lives under risk? We That's pop health management. And population health, the central tenet that we have embraced is that poverty and related issues are the core drivers of health or the lack of health in our country. And we call those the social determinants. So that's, uh, those are our two working definitions for population health and population health management. Got it. How, uh, how has that evolved um, y- even 
I think since you've started uh, the population health school there at, at Jefferson, you know, population health is a term that's been around uh, since World War II by some accounts. Um, how has that changed? Is this focus on poverty new? Is there something that's, that's coming out of it that's different even than when you started? Well, that's a great question. I think we were lucky to have our school open two years before Obamacare. And so we've been riding a, a sustained wave of interest in the issues of how do you actually move from a health care system to a system that's all about improving health. Because no one could argue effectively, in our view, that the system is promoting health. So we are all about uh, changing the incentives, uh, moving from a world of uh, volume to value, uh, shutting off the faucet rather than mopping up the floor. I mean, th this is a uh, complete sea change in how we approach uh, healthcare delivery in our country with a deep understanding that uh, where you live, that your zip code is actually more predictive of your health than your genetic code. Yeah, no, that's terrific. So Stuart, I'll turn to you uh, to kind of continue the conversation here. Um, tell us a little bit about, about Navis and, and why you chose to partner with Jefferson in this way. Well, sure. Well, we um, uh, obviously have adopted uh, the two Davids, and I think uh, it's uh, interesting in one field to have two seminal Davids, David Kindig and David Nash, uh, their approach to what population health is. And, and we come at it from the from the payer point of view and the provider point of view. And, and, and we think that the, all the action needs to be at the frictional interface of where those two huge industries intersect. The, um, so we are very interested in uh, the management of populations and very interested in this transition from the classic physician provider view of one by one in a reactive way, facility-based care to a, uh, ongoing journey uh, of health that consumers and patients members really take and moving from this uh, what's the matter with you to what matters to you and and um, and I think as David says the, the the big point to me there are two big points about this that have stimulated our work one is um, that uh, there's a huge disconnect between U.S. healthcare expenditures and the key determinants of health that David mentioned. So social determinants, behavior, genetics, environment, you know, these things account for 80% or more, David could tell you exactly, of health and, health and healthcare accounts for 10, 15%, yet we spend almost 90% of our dollars on healthcare. So, so that's, that's one issue. How do you, how do you read? redirect that. Um, and, and then the other is, how do you get providers uh, and insurers who insure people one by one by one to think about the actual outcomes of people in the aggregate? Because you think about U.S. healthcare as though we think we do very well one by one by one. When you step back and look at how we do outcomes-wise with a population, we cost a lot. We really are not as high quality and as safe as we'd like to be. And from a health point of view, we're way down the list of developed countries. So we're very interested in figuring out uh, and helping payers and providers uh, with a system, and we'll talk about this as we go forward, um, to really tackle the population health issues. And what we're excited about with this uh, opportunity to uh, 
support a professorship at, at Jefferson is we strongly believe that the field needs to move forward. We strongly believe Jefferson is a spectacular place to do that. It was the first, as, as you know, college of population health in the whole country. Uh, and we need to uh, provide academic rigor as to what works and what doesn't work and really, really look at the research and uh, the results of what's done so we can move the whole field forward and then educate our uh, incoming professionals about this change that David has mentioned. Excellent. Well, let, let me add, Sam, as uh, you know, since Dr. Baker and I are both physicians, uh, uh, he and I know that you didn't learn any of this in medical school. None, sir. <laughs> right. right. So that's a pretty sad comment. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask both of you actually about that. Medical schools have been in the news recently. We saw NYU saying that that medical school is going to be free. We saw Kaiser saying they're going to start their own medical school to train people yes. to, to to practice in the Kaiser model. Where does a college of population health fit into that? Is is this a new type of practitioner? Is this an evolution Great. of a medical school? You How do bet. I? Yes. Well, so. That's a great question. Our textbook, Population Health, Creating a Culture of Wellness, and our peer-reviewed global journal, Population Health Management, are widely used across the country in pharmacy school, nursing school, medical school, health administration, and public health. The textbook alone is in 80, 80 graduate programs across the country. So in a small way, I believe we're contributing to the conversation, helping to, if you would, move the ball down the field, uh, coming from our Super Bowl city. That's pretty darn important. Uh, but we are making a contribution to the thinking around getting the tenets of population health into graduate professional health education uh, in an interprofessional way. Now, is it moving fast enough? Certainly not. Uh, we're very proud of Dr. Mark Schuster, the new dean at Kaiser Permanente. I'm on the board of trustees of the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine in Scranton, a medical school completely devoted to improving population health. Uh, Sydney Kimmel Medical College, our sister school on the campus at Jefferson, has a new curriculum called JeffMD with a pretty good dose of population health. So we're making progress, uh, but I'm sure Dr. Baker would agree, not nearly fast enough. There's really no question about that. Really, the, the gap between the existing practitioners and payment systems and where we need to be is really significant. And I think David is a, is a perfect representation of the idea that we need to educate and transform our young practitioners uh, to really to, to take the flag uh, on, on this particular problem. So I think these efforts are great, and that's why we'd like to be close to the action that, that David is one of the mm -hmm. national mm -hmm. leaders around. So what, on the tool side, what do we need to make population health really work? Wow, well, Maybe from... Yeah, that's, a, that's great. <laughs> From my perspective, uh, well, obviously it's a witch's brew of stuff we would need, but if I had to rank the priority order, the most important thing is to realign the economic incentives that drive clinical behavior from volume to value. What does that mean? It means to reduce the pernicious incentives of private practice fee-for-service medicine, where the more we do, the more we get paid. 
uh, and remove those incentives uh, or ameliorate them at least to move to a world where we ask ourselves the question, why are we doing this test in the first place? What's the benefit of this procedure? To another world where how do we improve health? Not how do we fix this problem, but uh, what can we do to improve health? I would like to make it to a day when the blue H sign for a hospital means health and healing. Try to picture that in your mind's eye. And if we ever get to that day, then I know our job has been successful. I'd, I'd like to make just add on to those great comments. Um, uh, D. Hawk, who was the founder of Visa, had this great line. He said, only a fool falls in love with his tools. And, and I think that's what we've suffered from in healthcare is, oh, the lady, here's the tool you need. I think there will be a continued evolution of technology and tools in that sense that will help us connect. You know, the Internet of Things is going to be terrific when it finally gets applied well to healthcare. So I would make two general comments. One is to totally agree with David about the economic incentives. And I'll give you two quotes. You know, there's Upton Sinclair 100 years ago said, it's impossible to explain something to a man when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. So that, that's Great where line. we are in healthcare. And then, and then David Kindig, who, who David mentioned a minute ago, uh, about 20 years ago, said, I think this is the quote, population improvement will not be achieved until appropriate financial incentives are designed for this outcome. There you so, go. So that, that is, that's a huge one. The second thing I would say is uh, I think population health, as we're speaking of it today, is akin to, and I know that quality and safety are subsumed under population health and David's yes. classic definition of it. But I would just say, remember in 1998 when IOM came out about with all the statistics about patient safety and, and yep. medical deaths and all that, uh, the answer there was it's not a, an individual's fault, an individual problem. It's a system challenge. And I think that that's exactly the analogy to where we are in population health. Individual practitioners be they doctors, nurses, pharmacists, by and of themselves can't solve this. So it really is creating a system, uh, an ecosystem, if you will, that's, that connects people, that's got technology in it, that's got standardized processes, um, networks that, that are supplemented by these social determinant community ecosystems that address the challenges David mentioned. And it's creating those which is really uh, anti-cultural to the way that doctors certainly were trained historically. So it's financial incentives, it's a system of population health, and then evolving technologies that are used to make care easier and can make the promotion of health uh, easier. That's a great answer from Stu. Uh, what we believe, and we've just created yet another online master's degree program, and we've trademarked this, so we call it population health intelligence. And we believe leaders in that field, population health intelligence, they'll be able to draw understandings and inferences and get information from all the data we're collecting. That's going to be very, very important. And we've written extensively about the creation of a registry function and how important that is. We see that as all a central part of managing the health of a population. Yeah, we really applaud and celebrate that. Stuart, let me let me connect two points you you just made. I think you you made the point that 
you know, we can't just hold an individual care provider uh, accountable that it really is, this really is a system problem. And on the other hand, you know, we need to make sure all the, the financial incentives are aligned. And I think, you know, the country is still very much wrestling with, with what that looks like. It's, you know, if you take a single, uh, single shingle individual practitioner, um, you know, primary care physician who's running her own office and say you're responsible for all the cost of care of an individual, um, you know, she probably doesn't know quite what to do with that. That's not the training she has. On the other right. hand, you, know, you look at results for hospital-led ACOs, for example, and you get to big hospital systems, and I think, you know, your, your Upton Sinclair line starts to, starts to make a lot of sense. How do we think about aligning the incentives in the right way? It's not just shifting risk. How does, how does thinking evolve around that? Sure. Well, we, we, we do have a strong point of view, and, and let me just quickly say that the five things that we're interested, David's in charge, so whatever he decides to look at, but the five things we're interested in this professorship are social, social determinants of health, physician engagement, critical, person-centric care and health, provider networks, because we think, to your point, Sam, um, you can't do this alone, so it's really the power of the group, both psychologically and, and uh, from a resource point of view. And the last is payment transformation strategy. So what, how, what are the best payment transformation approaches? So I'll just tell you a quick story is that in, in Hawaii, we've worked closely with the Blues Plan there, which has significant market share. And, over, and, and uh, David Nash um, uh, was incredibly helpful. David chaired the Blue Ribbon Panel of uh, illuminaries, including uh, three previous CMS secretaries, uh, directors, um, that looked at what's the best way to, to transform a payment for primary care. And uh, as of uh, earlier this year, 96% of all the primary care doctors, most of whom are single shingle practitioners, as you, as you mentioned, Sam, are now on a PMPM basis, no more fee-for-service for primary care. And uh, with certain incentives to ensure access and quality performance and those things. And then they're aggregated in, and you might call them pods or networks, where that network is accountable in addition to quality for total cost of care, kind of at a substrate level of sufficient volume where they can do that. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's where you then build an ecosystem that they can refer to that's set up because they are all the docs in Hawaii very much support the ideas of social determinants of health being critical, but they have neither the time nor the pay nor the expertise to manage it. So they, they need a place to refer all this. And what we've also found, last point about this, is that in the community, there's tremendous fragmentation of all these services. They don't even know about each other. So the opportunity to connect all of this be it Philadelphia or Honolulu or the Big Island in Hawaii is is opportune. So um, so that's how we think about it. And and we've also uh, worked with some behavioral health experts who have pointed out that a little bit of incentive on top of a fee for service system, a little bit added being not fee for service, is really not sufficient to drive behavior. You really have to have a dramatic change in how physicians are are, are compensated to align the behavioral aspects of what they do. Boy, Sam, Stu just gave a great answer. And, uh, you, you know, the single shingle doctor without the medical record, the registry, the team, and the bundled payment is never going to be able to practice population-based medicine. 
So you got to change all those variables that Stu outlined. And boy, you know, in Hawaii, they've done an incredible job. It's a, it's a reportable event. And of course, you know, one market, somewhat isolated, unique with unique leadership, but exporting that kind of ecosystem is what population health management is all about. Yeah. No, it's great. And the, and the Hawaii story is a, is a terrific one. What about the, the flip side of this? What's the role of, of the hospital or the big health system in, in population health? Boy, so uh, not just the hospital, but all aspects of the delivery system, they have to reassess uh, their role. It's a gigantic fixed asset. And look, we're always going to need an ICU and an emergency room and a trauma bay and the dialysis and all the rest. But I think when people think about Jefferson Health, they're going to think uh, about a lot of things. They're going to think uh, telemedicine. They're going to think about a neighborhood primary care site. They're going to think about Jefferson Urgent Care. And then if they're really sick, then they're going to think about Jefferson University Hospital at 11th and uh, Chestnut Street in Center City, Philadelphia. So Jefferson is going to be basically everywhere. Uh, and I envision even beyond that, you know, Jefferson giving you dietary advice and exercise and uh, checkups and preventive medicine, uh, changing the whole culture from the procedurally based expert to promoting real health. But when you need it, those emergency type services or complex services will be there. That's a sea change because it also means that um, across all 14 hospitals in our delivery system, not everybody will be able to do everything. So we have lots of difficult choices to make. Fortunately, in our college, we're not responsible for those operational costs, but we study, critique, recommend, and do research on those choices. <laughs> but it's true for every multi-hospital delivery system. They're going to have to rationalize their approach. Look, I've been a hospital board member for 19 years in two different systems in two different states. We made some difficult choices. Uh, not every hospital should do open-heart surgery. Not every hospital should do ERCP, endoscopy, endarterectomies. You, you know, it's crazy. So rationalizing the approach is another part, believe it or not, of starting to reallocate resources to promote health. Yeah, I, think, I think David makes a key point there. It's and notice he said rationalizing, not rationing. So Correct. Yep. Rationing is the defense that the individual institution raises when, when David's approach comes to the fore. And I think it's the exact right approach. So what we have is a system that now that celebrates the, uh, the part as opposed to the whole. We really haven't proactively designed a highly efficient, affordable, accessible, convenient, connected those are the words we use, system of health and health care that makes sense to uh, people of all economic backgrounds. The, um, uh, and, and, and I think one thing that will help population health, I'd be curious what David thinks about this, is the consumerism movement, if you will, and how it comes into health care. Because today's consumer expects much more 
convenience, connected, you should know me if I showed up here, uh, accessible, it needs to be, I'd like to do this in the context of my life and how I'm living my life because that's how I get engaged and I can change my behaviors. So I, I'm hopeful that this consumerism movement and the addition of things like Amazon and Apple into healthcare and Google will, um, will, will uh, facilitate, accelerate our movement to population health management uh, as opposed to this facility-based classic care. David, what, what's your thought about that? Well, for sure. And uh, again, we have to move away from the four walls. Our system CEO, pretty famous Dr. Steve Glasgow, uh, well-known national thought leader, disruptor, he, he says Jefferson will be everywhere. And I think that's a great way to think about it. And just like uh, on your iPhone, so you need us, we'll be there. And depending on what level, even if you need us just to remind you to take your medicine. See, that's a different model altogether. What if our primary care practices sent you a text message about your diet, take your medicine, did you get enough exercise today? I mean, there's the Internet of Things is going to revolutionize patient engagement. Here's the punchline, I think, and Stu sort of articulated this. You can't have a healthy population unless they're engaged with you. So we never thought that way in the delivery system. We only wanted them engaged when they were sick. Right. We so, were doing things to them. Right. So this exactly. is a totally different mindset. And most delivery systems are woefully unprepared to truly engage. Look, we've got in the delivery system, I hate to say this, but uh, there's institutional racism. Here's what I mean by that. It's a powerful term. If you're going to build a primary care office that's not accessible to most of your patients, what good is that? If you're going to have a cancer center where it costs 30 bucks a day to park and it's so confusing to the average patient, you think that's patient engagement? I don't. So we got a long way to go here. Um, it's, it's a different world. And I've been a primary care doctor. This is my 30th anniversary in practice. Yeah, I never took a food history ever. And now I'm learning just alongside all of my intern and resident colleagues who are less than half my age. <laughs> uh, you know, do you have trouble putting food on the table? How many buses did it take for you to get to our office? Is there a working refrigerator at home? That's, that's a powerful set of questions we were never taught to ask. Yeah, that's an important thing. And I, you know, I for one think we'd all be a lot healthier if Jefferson were, were everywhere because we'd start having those conversations. You bet. Uh, um, you so I'll, I'll end with the question we ask everybody and maybe Stuart, I'll start, start with you and then we'll go to David. Um, but if you had all the money, time, resources, power in the world, What's the one thing you'd fix about healthcare? Um, well, that's really a political question. And I would say that my politics is sort of like driving in Boston, generally in the middle and leaning towards the left, you know. But, uh, <laughs> what I would say is uh, maybe, maybe three or four things. Um, I think uh, supporting technology and aligned funding and payment transformation will be central. Uh, so, so those investment in those kinds of approaches, the idea of engaging, enabling, and empowering 
through connecting providers, uh, a systems approach, investing in that, learning through Jefferson, for instance, what works and what doesn't work is, uh, is really important. Um, because all the, our view is only by working together in that way can we achieve certain outcomes that are otherwise unachievable, you know, end, wow. end of story. And, wow. and then whatever we, can, whatever we could do from the consumer point of view to make healthcare affordable, accessible, convenient, and connected, I think I used those four words before probably, um, th that's what uh, I think we need to be investing in. And it'd be great if we could take the waste that we've identified out so that we're not, you know, there's money to do that. And, I'm of the opinion there's a lot of money in healthcare, but there's also a lot of interest protecting that money. So it's a ma it's a major cultural change. But those are the things I think we should focus on. Wow. And so my answer to this tough question goes back to the best-selling book when I was in college, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, <laughs> and and the the irony, if you would, of give away what you want most. So, so for me, it's all about um, changing health professions education to focus on health and prevention and change the culture that worships the creation of the subspecialist who's expert in a narrow area and expects uh, uh, huge rewards to move away from that to uh, celebrating primary care as a team sport for the future. If we could change the culture to celebrate primary care and elevate it to a great team sport where everyone wants to be on that team, and then we change the economic incentives, that, that would be spectacular. It would indeed. Dr. David Nash, Dr. Stuart Baker, congratulations on your new professorship and all the good work ahead. And, and here's hoping as you have more success, we, we get closer to a day when someone's income doesn't determine their lifespan. Thank you very indeed. much. Indeed. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.